Good morning. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. While you are turning there, uh, I have a few things I would like to say myself. Um, as Blake said, I grew up in this church uh, my, my whole life for the first 19 years of my, my existence. And uh, I, I grew up under the, the pastoral uh, tutelage of, of uh, Bobby File, who is now retired, of course. And I knew Blake uh, for a time as well. And I, I've just been so blessed by this congregation uh, through the years. And uh, it's, it's a strange thing to think about coming and preaching here uh, before people who taught me in Sunday school and taught me in youth group and all these other things. Uh, but uh, as, as Blake also said, I was the recipient for a long time of, of the David Williams Scholarship, uh, which this congregation very generously provides for those in theological education. And I have not had the opportunity to formally thank this church uh, for the many years now, nearly decade uh, of support that I have, I have received from you all. Uh, even since I've moved away. So thank you very much. And it was in large part being able to say that thank you that, that led me to the passage we are going to look at this morning, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Uh, I'm sorry, I do have to ask, do you all still stand for the reading of God's word? Okay, please stand for the reading of God's word. Things change in 15 years. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray. Lord God, it is a glorious word that you have given us in this book, Ephesians. We pray, O oh Lord, that as we spend time this morning, having heard it proclaimed as your people, that you would apply it to our hearts, that you would encourage us with the salvation that we have been given, O oh Lord, and that we would further and further reflect our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You have no idea how long I've also waited to say thanks be to God. and Everybody join in. So, in C.S. Lewis's book, The Silver Chair, the main characters of Jill and Eustace are set on a quest by Aslan, the Christ figure of Lewis's stories, to go on an epic quest to find a long-lost prince. And at the very beginning of the book, 
Jill receives instructions or signs that are meant to guide the children to accomplish this task. But throughout the journey, the children constantly miss these signs because they get distracted by the circumstances they find themselves in. In fact, at one point, they're, they're going through a particularly cold and windy day, and Jill actually falls into one of the signs, a, a, a message that is written on the landscape. She falls into it, but they are so miserable that they, they refuse to listen to a, a companion who's saying, hey, let's stop and, and look around us and see what we're looking at, because they're so desperate to, to find some shelter from the cold wind and to, to get some warm food in their bellies. The interesting, and the climax of the story, I should say, comes when they, they finally realize their mistake. They, they've come and they see one more sign and all their intuition is telling them, don't believe it. And they have to decide whether to believe what they've been told by Aslan or to trust their intuition. And this dynamic is, is interesting because as Lewis sets the story up, the children have everything they need to accomplish the task before them at the very beginning of the book. The conflict arises when they need to appreciate what they've been given and put their trust in it. Well, this same dynamic, brothers and sisters, is an intimate part of the Christian life as well. In a similar manner, we have been given salvation. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. And the Spirit regenerated our hearts to hear the gospel of Christ to put our faith in it. And now we actually live by the Spirit so that we can put to death the deeds of sin. Not just resist it, but, but put it to death. And yet, even as we, we even have the promise of a future in which sin will be completely done away with, in which we will no longer suffer from it, we will no longer weep, we will have no more tragedy, we will see our Lord come in the heavens and every knee bow and proclaim him as king. Despite this great triumphant picture that scripture gives us of the Christian life, so often in our own experience we are discouraged. We're discouraged because we see the world around us push the church more and more into the sidelines to denigrate us as Christians. We are discouraged because even though we witness to our family and friends who don't know Christ, they continually reject the gospel. And we are discouraged because we see the sin in our own lives and feel how difficult it is sometimes to resist it. Well, I don't think the Apostle Paul is any stranger to this reality. And in our passage this morning, he addresses the Ephesian believers. In doing so, he gives thanks to God for the signs of grace that they are showing, specifically their love for the fellow saints. And then he prays for the enlightening of the Holy Spirit upon them and further extols the mighty power of God in great detail. And so what I'm hoping as we, we look at this passage, we will see that God's power in the Christian is revealed by the Spirit. And this should lead us to thanksgiving, hope, and reflection. And we're going to take each part of that and kind of detail it in, in three main points. So God's power in the Christian is revealed by the Spirit, and this should lead us to thanksgiving, hope, 
and reflection. And I should also say that this is a, an incredibly rich passage. So unfortunately, we will be giving kind of the 10,000-foot view. We won't be able to go into a lot of detail, but uh, I'm, I'm hoping it will be helpful nonetheless. So our first point this morning is God's power is revealed in the Christian. And this should lead to thanksgiving. God's power revealed in the Christian should lead to thanksgiving. As we just read, Paul begins by giving thanks to God for the faith of the Ephesians. And this is a very common practice in his letters. Almost every single one of Paul's epistles begins with a thanksgiving to God. The uh, one really noticeable exception is his epistle to the Galatians in which the, the, the gospel is at stake in the church. And so it, it is a serious thing when you don't see this thanksgiving. Uh, but even as this, uh, this is a common practice of Paul, and indeed even a, a common practice of early church letters, it, it can become easy to, to when we're, we're reading through this book, to kind of glance over them, to skip over it. Uh, to, to not stop and pause and think about what's going on. But I want to argue that we should stop and consider what is going on here, what Paul is doing. And I, I, we have three questions I think we should ask why Paul uh, is, is giving this thing. So that, that's the very first question. Why does Paul give thanks? And he tells us he's giving thanks because of the faith of the Ephesians. They have put their faith in Christ. And this faith is finding expression and their love for their fellow believers. This, these two qualities, faith and love, of course, are to characterize us all. They characterize Christians through all of time. They are something that are given to all believers by God. And it is indeed, as, as I said, this, that there's a, an intimate connection between these two virtues and that a life of faith is supposed to find expression in love for our brothers and sisters. In fact, Calvin, in, in looking at this, this passage, says that the whole of Christian character is, is defined by these two words, faith and love. We even know from Paul's other writings, he says that he, he kind of lists three virtues that are are incredibly great for Christians, faith, hope, and love. And here we have two of them. So that is why Paul gives thanks. Paul has seen that the Ephesians have faith. He has heard about it, and he has heard as well of their carrying out that faith and their love for their fellow believers. The second question we should ask is, who does Paul give thanks to? And again, there's an interesting dynamic here, because he doesn't give thanks to the Ephesians. The Ephesians, of course, are the ones doing the work. They're the ones who are believing. They are the ones who are showing love to each other. But Paul directs his thanks to God. And this, again, I believe, is another way in which we see salvation is entirely a work of God. The Ephesians, of course, were not failing to evidence their faith. But Paul is not thanking the Ephesians, not because they, they aren't working, but because God is the one who enabled them to do that work. He is the one who regenerated their dead hearts. He is the one who sustains their faith. He is the one who enables them to love one another when they were once enemies. And so just as God is the one who accomplishes salvation, so God is the one who receives all the glory and thanksgiving. And finally, we should ask, why, what does Paul demonstrate about the act 
of thanksgiving. Notice Paul is actively recognizing the work of God in the Ephesians. He didn't have to, right? We hear good things about people all the time, and it goes in one ear and out the other. But Paul is stopping for a moment in this letter to these believers, and he's taking time to examine what he has heard about them and then to publicly, in this letter, give thanks to God for his work in them. He's, in fact, encouraged by him, by, by them. Uh, we, we know from chapter 3 that Paul, when he's writing this letter, is currently in chains. He's in a dark place. And, and as I said, this is a, a very common practice of Paul through all his epistles. And in, in some cases, the epistles are actually given to churches in, in really hard places. You might think of the Corinthians, the Corinthians had a member in their church who was doing a habitual sin that was so heinous that even the pagans of the first century reviled it. And yet Paul, in his first epistle to them, is able to take time and thank God for the faith that he has brought, to them, brought them to. I think this is an incredible example for us. Because we see here a, a tie between two uh, great qualities. The tie between encouragement and gratitude for God's work. Paul is in chains. He's in a hard place in his life. But even so, he is encouraged by the faith of the Ephesians. He is grateful to God for what he has done. And any small amount of examination will show that gratitude is not something that is natural to us as human beings. As uh, a single man, I've had a lot of opportunity to observe uh, my, my friends and relatives with children uh, begin to, to raise babies up. And it's, it's been fascinating to me to see that nobody has to train a child to demand something very strongly. We all come out of the womb crying and wailing to get something we want but it takes years of work for a parent to cause a child to stop for just a few seconds and say thank you to somebody who has done something for them or, or given them something. Gratitude actually has to be trained in us, and this is not a problem that ceases after we become adults. We currently live in a society which is one of the most prosperous and richest the world has ever seen. We have had comforts, all of you, this morning that people a hundred years ago would have died for, and yet we take it for granted. And, and we see this in society because is our country right now known for being thankful, for being encouraged, for being uh, so happy that we have been blessed with these material advantages? No, we, we are more and more known for our discouragement and even our depression. And of course, there are a lot of factors to that, but I think it's undeniable that a lack of gratitude for what we've been given is one of them. And it's also, we must be careful as well, because it's easy to kind of look out into the world and see, oh, well, this is how all those non-unbelievers, non-Christians are ungrateful. But we must also remember, brothers and sisters, to, to turn our examination upon ourselves and examine our own culpability. And so in light of what we have seen in the epistle, just in these few verses, I would like to ask you, when was the last time that you expressed your thanks for God for his work 
in a loved one's life. When was the last time you turned to a spouse, a brother, a sister, a son, or daughter, and said, I see the work of God in you, and I am so encouraged that his grace has, has worked on you in this way? By contrast, when was the last time you criticized a friend or loved one because they weren't evidencing the grace of God as much as you'd like them to? Now, of course, in asking these questions, and I'm, I'm asking them as somebody who is convicted by them, by the way, I, I'm not trying to say that there is never a time, even in the church, for criticism, even strong criticism, and calls to repentance. As I said, Paul rebukes the Galatians and the Corinthians very strongly. But the church is not to be defined by people or by families who are known for their constant criticism. It is to be defined by a people who mutually upbuild one another. A people who are spurring each other on to greater godliness and faith. And this is serious, brothers and sisters, because to fail to see the grace of God in other people's lives is not just to miss an opportunity for encouragement. It is also to fail to give God the glory that is due to him for his saving work and grace around us. And so I would urge us all this day to take some time and think about how we can be thankful for the work of God in the lives of those around us, how we can be encouraged by it. But of course, in order to give thanks, one must be able to recognize God's grace, both around us and also within us. I forgot about the water bottles. So that leads us to our second point. God's power is revealed in the Christian. And this should lead us to a dependent hope. God's power is revealed in the Christian, and this should lead to a dependent hope. In, um, in verses 16 through 17, we have a, a seamless transition uh, from Paul, from thanksgiving to God to petition to God. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and of knowledge of him. Just in these couple of verses, there is a lot of dynamics going on. Uh, first of all, we see Paul's care and concern for the Ephesians. He is remembering them constantly in his prayers, even in his imprisonment. He is thinking about them. He is desiring God to bless them. What is more, we see the work of all three persons of the Trinity. Notice who, God is, or notice who Paul is addressing. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. Right there, you have two persons, the Father and the Son. And then you have the third person in the request itself. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, this is interesting. The, the spirit of revelation and knowledge clearly refers to the Holy Spirit. It's not some separate entity, some separate spirit or angel that, that gives the Christian wisdom and knowledge. This is something the Holy Spirit does. It is the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who makes us alive again, who applies God's word to our hearts. 
This is his job. So this is a clear reference from Paul to the third person of the Trinity. But why? Given that he is writing to the Ephesians, given that he's writing to the church of the Ephesians, is he now asking that they be indwelt by the Holy Spirit? They already have the Holy Spirit. He says so actually earlier in in chapter 1. He says that they were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. So why is he asking that they be indwelt by him now? Well, I think it's, it's fairly clear, given what he has said and, and the fact that he's already mentioned that they have faith in God, that these people do, in fact, have the Holy Spirit already. But Paul is asking that the Holy Spirit would work in them to open their eyes so that they grow in their knowledge and understanding of God's power at work in their lives. Paul is asking the the Holy Spirit to work in the Ephesians to enable them to see his power and work in their lives. And he lists three specific ways for the Ephesians uh, to be enlightened. First of all, he wants the Holy Spirit to enlighten them in the hope to which they have been called. And this is a a beautiful thing. We have been called uh, by God to salvation. That is our our hope. We have been saved, and what is more, we are looking forward to a day in which we feel the full effects of that salvation. But it's it's also important to note how Paul is using the term hope, because we use it in a lot of different ways. Uh, We use it to say, I hope it won't be windy tomorrow, or I hope I get that job promotion, or in my case, I hope the sermon goes okay. And and in each of these instances, we use this term as something that we kind of wish or desire, but that we don't know is going to happen. We have no guarantee, no surety that it will happen. But that's not the way Paul uses it. When Paul uses it, it's sure. He knows it's going to happen. You, as God's people, have been called to a sure, unbreakable hope. Namely, that someday you are going to dwell in God's blessed presence forever. And in fact, it is more certain that Christ will bring you to glory than that you are going to take your next breath. That's how certain it is. That's what Paul wants his people to know. And he continues by saying he wants them to know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, this phrase is a little less clear than the first one. It takes a little time to pause and think about. Because the Ephesians are not receiving the inheritance. Do you notice that? The saints, believers, are the inheritance. God is the receiver. Paul, in in using this language, is trying to stress the love of God for his people. He doesn't save you begrudgingly. He doesn't go to the cross uh, with, with an air of indifference. He's not going to bring you to glory with a shrug of his shoulders. No, you are his treasured possession. You are his inheritance. The one whom he has died for is the one he desires. The Lord desires to be in relationship with you. And so Paul, in in using this terminology, is stressing the great magnitude of God's love for his people. Even as 
God receives us as his inheritance, we receive his boundless love. And if that wasn't enough, he continues with the third thing he desires the Ephesians to see. The immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe according to the working of his might. And we've already seen this power manifest in the Christian. It is the power to save and preserve them until they come to glory, until sin is finally and fully done away. The power which is manifest in your life right now. And this is an important dynamic to remember, of course. Anytime we're reading uh, letters from Paul or any other apostle, you know, while, while he is writing specifically to the Ephesians, you and I participate in this same faith. We are inheritors of the same salvation. And so these realities are our realities as well. This is just as applicable today as it was 2,000 years ago. And so you as well, brothers and sisters, need to grow in the knowledge and assurance of God's power and work in you. But as we noted earlier, and as, as Lewis illustrated so well, life often gets us down. We, we have a tendency to become so focused on our sin that we begin to doubt. We begin to miss the evidences of God's power. We feel discouraged, and we wonder if God has grown tired of us, if he's growing impatient. And that, brothers and sisters, is precisely why we need to pray for the Spirit's enlightening in our own lives. And we need to remember when we go into devotions to come before the Lord and bow our knees and pray that he would open our eyes. Because God's grace is not seen through the eyes of the body. It's seen through the eyes of faith. It is only by the Spirit that we can see his work. And in this, again, we see that we are completely dependent upon God. In the Reformed world, particularly, we tend to, to emphasize that salvation is all of God. We only come to faith because God brings us to it. We only love God because he first loved us. And that's very true, and we should continue to do so. But in, doing, in emphasizing that, we must also remember that even after we come to faith, even after we come to salvation, we are entirely dependent upon him. We are entirely dependent upon him to grow in the grace we have been given. And brothers and sisters, far from discouraging us, this actually provides us with more sure and certain hope than we could ever have. First of all, because even if you can't see the grace that is at work within you, that doesn't mean it's not there. You can trust in the promises of Scripture that God's power is at work in you right here and right now. And secondly, you can also come before the Spirit and pray, and after that, trust him to reveal his work, since it is his desire for you to be assured. God is not standing you know, 3,000 miles above you saying, oh, I might give him assurance, I might not. He actively wants you to be assured. He wants you to know this grace. He wants you to know his work in you. And that is why we must have a dependent hope. Dependent hope is relying upon the Spirit to open your eyes to see the truths of God's word at work in your life and then resting in those promises. I say it again. 
Dependent hope is relying upon the Spirit to open your eyes and to see the truths of God's word at work in your life and resting in those promises. And this is the state, brothers and sisters, in which the Christian can grow in knowledge and in faithfulness. It's the devil who would have you discouraged. But if you believe in the Lord Jesus, then you have been given the power of God, not only to resist sin, but to put it to death and grow in the image of Christ. And in case all of this doesn't convince you, Paul continues by giving a concrete picture of how powerful God is. And specifically, the greatest example there ever has been of Jesus Christ himself. And that brings us to our third point. So far, we have seen how God's power revealed in the Christian should cause us to uh, give thanks and also to uh, have dependence and hope in Christ. But now we're going to kind of change our formula a little bit. And we're going to see in our third point that God's power revealed in Christ should lead us to reflection. God's power revealed in Christ should lead to reflection. As we saw in the last point, Paul kind of seamlessly transitions from giving thanks to God to petitioning God on behalf of the Ephesians. And now we have an equally seamless transition from petition to a consideration of Jesus Christ. And we see that in verses 20 through 23, which basically act as an, an explanation or an expansion of the power of God Paul talks about in verse 19. You will recall in verse 19, Paul asks the Spirit to reveal to the Ephesians the, the great power that is at work within them. And then he says at the very end of verse 19, according to the work of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. Brothers and sisters, there's so much rich truth in this. And as I said, we are looking at this from a 10,000 uh, point view, so we're not going to be able to go into all of it. Uh, this is going to be a criminally short section, but... Uh, just, just considering briefly what we have here, notice what Paul is doing. He is drawing a connection between the power of God in the Christian and the power of God that raised Christ from the dead, that ascended him to heaven, and that is continuing in his ongoing reign. Do you see what that connection is? The connection is it's the same power. The same power that raises Christ not only from the dead, but over all rulers and authorities and dominion in heaven on earth is the same power that now works in you this morning. That's how potent it is. And Paul, in considering this, takes opportunity to relish in Christ's exalted state. He speaks of him as being seated at God's right hand. This is an allusion to Psalm 110, where the, the Davidic king is said, uh, well, I should say, where David says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
the idea here is that the king of, of Jerusalem, the, the, the Davidic king, is sitting at God's right hand as God paves a way for his reign. Well, we see now that Christ is the one who occupies this position. He is the one that is now ruling at the right hand of God, the one whom God has submitted all things under his feet. And so it is no wonder that Paul moves from describing Christ's position to all the authorities that are submitted to him, whether they oppose him or follow him. And after he considers this, this great reality, this transcendence of Christ, he then, interestingly enough, returns to the church. In verses 22 through 23, notice what happens. This God, this Christ, who has been exalted above everything, transcendent, this Christ is paradoxically given to the church. Think about how strange that is. He is above all rulers. Everything stands underneath his feet, and yet he is the church's possession. As he stands above all earthly powers, in some way, we join him. This is what it's talking about. Paul is talking about our union with Christ. It is the union that is established by the Holy Spirit, in which we receive his perfect record. Our sins are given to him. His perfect life is given to us. The death that we deserved is given to him, and the life that he earned is given to us. When we receive Christ's benefits and Christ receives our sin. This is the union with Christ which also exalts Christ and in a sense us as well with him. We are exalted with Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is what Paul means when he's talking in Romans and says that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. What a glorious truth that is. Even as we face pain and tragedy in this life, even as we suffer and cry, we have access to the Lord Jesus. And we can find our fullness in him in the darkest times. We have full assurance in him of our own glorification. And this, brothers and sisters, is what we can remind ourselves when circumstances get dire, when we have difficulty looking past our own sin or even the sins of others around us, when we have difficulty finding the encouragement of God's Spirit. We can look to the rock of ages who never changes, who stands as a beacon through all of time for God's great power because it is the same power that exalted him that will and does exalt us as well. In our union with Christ through the Spirit, we participate in his fullness. And this is what we can assure ourselves in times of doubt, fear, and discouragement. And so, brothers and sisters, in addition to praying for the Holy Spirit to reveal the grace of God in us, and also in addition to considering uh, the, the way that we are united to Christ, let us also, as we devote our time to the Lord this week and throughout the rest of our lives, take some time in our devotions to consider Christ's ruling power, because this is meant to encourage us. 
And you will notice that Paul talks about how Christ is at the right hand of God. He is exalted. His name is above every name. And then Paul is very specific. He's he's very intentional in mentioning that it is not only in this age, but in the age to come. Once again, this is something that we can lose sight of. We can sometimes become uh, so blind that we, 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 we love this world so much, we lose sight of the future and that Christ is going to reign, and we, we immediately want his reign here and now. And it is here and now. But there's a greater one in the future. Although if you ask me, I think the tendency among us most of the time is to see that Christ's reign is going to be so glorious in the future that we forget he's reigning now. But he is. His church is a sign of it even. You right here and right now are evidence that Christ is reigning in glory. The fact that we are singing to him this morning is a sign of it. And the church, even when it is at its weakest, is still united to Christ in an unbreakable bond. Let us take encouragement from these sure truths. And if you are, uh, this church has, has changed in many ways, so if you are visiting here, Uh, and you do not know Christ, you have not uh, put your faith in him, please realize this is what you're missing out on. This is what is being offered to you in the gospel. Union and fellowship with him for the rest of your life and through all of time. And so I would urge you to take the gospel seriously and to pray that the spirit would enlighten your eyes to his work. And for those of you uh, who are believers in Jesus Christ, take hope that this is the reality you possess and is a reality that more and more people are coming to as the church continues to preach the word. Because God's power in the Christian is revealed by the Spirit. And so we should respond with a joyful thanksgiving, with a sure, dependent hope, and with reflection upon our Savior. And as I come to a close now, I would just like to emphasize once again something I've I've been talking about throughout this sermon, but uh, should be closed on as well. And that is that it is God's desire for you to be encouraged with this truth. Because he loves you. It is his desire not that you suffer from doubts, not that you're constantly on the edge of your seat wondering if you're good enough. He is making you that way. And it is in that hope that you can continue to work. It is the hope of God's love, a boundless love that never fades or fails. And regardless of how well you perceive it in the moment, it continues on forever. Because God has promised it in his word. And that word is eternal. Not an iota of it is lost to the passages of time. Empires rise and fall. People are born and die, but God's word and his love for his people remains and ever works in their lives. We look forward to hearing of that love again and to receiving it as we celebrate his supper. Let's pray. Lord God, it is a tremendous glory to be a part of your church, to be one of your beloved We have been given as your people such a wonderful, wonderful gift. And so we ask, Lord, as Paul prayed in our passage this morning, that you would open our eyes to see your grace 
that you would give us encouragement in the Holy Spirit to see how you are working not only in our lives, Lord, but also in the lives of the saints around us, that you would continue to work in your church to build it and make it a, a structure that is mutually uplifting and encouraging, that it would be founded upon a sure hope of your word, so that, Lord, we might proclaim it to those who are still lost in darkness in need of a Savior. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.